0: Well, good morning, my name is Rob Armstrong. I get the wonderful privilege of serving as the executive pastor here at Grace, and it is a true joy. This morning when I came in, I ran into some friends and everything, and they looked at me and how I was dressed, and they made the statement, you clean up well. And I thought, what did I look like before? <laughs> anyway, I, I, I did dress up today, and uh, I looked in the mirror and I thought, you know, I could be a model. And I struck a pose and I convinced myself I could be. Let me show you the pose that convinced me that I could be a model. I think you'll see why I concluded that, ready? (laughs) See, uh, right, that would work in a catalog. Yeah, work in a catalog. This morning our message is from 2 Peter. I think I got a notice this morning that the bulletin said first, but it's actually 2 Peter. We're gonna look at chapter one. Uh, titled the message this morning, Maturity or Mediocrity? Because when Peter begins to talk to those believers, he's encouraging them to grow spiritually, and he kind of not only tells us what they're provided, but he also tells them what their contribution should be, what it should, performance should look like, and then what the purpose of it is. And when I thought of maturity and, and growth, uh, uh, an experience came back to my mind. I, out of college, I started working at Pine Cove, and I went to Pine Cove Towers, and I began working with 11 or 12-year-olds, and my understanding of their level of maturity was not where they were. One night, we were sitting after, at the meal, and at Pine Cove, the counselor would sit with his campers at the table, and two of these young men got into an argument about something. I have I do not recall what the argument was about, but... They were arguing about something that absolutely meant nothing. It was like one of these battles. And I thought the best way to get these two back on track was to use sarcasm. I came to realize that a 12-year-old does not understand sarcasm. And so what I thought was to show them the real lack of maturity that they were showing in this argument, I said to the one boy, So so I suppose your dad can beat up his dad. Well, the argument changed, and he was now convinced he needed to convince the other boy that his dad could, in fact, beat up his dad. And the whole argument changed. You know, when we think of maturity, we recognize that in the physical world, when a child is born, there's an expectation of a progression toward a more mature life. And as a parent... There was an expectation I had of my children at times that they should act their age. And as a parent, have we not said, and by the way, if you're a parent, you haven't said it, you will at some point, to your child, would you please act your age? Or would you just grow up? Because we have an expectation, we have a definition, we have an understanding that there's there's a necessary progression that you, you should attain to. We never expect a child of a certain age to continue to be treated like a baby. And we look at him and say, you need to grow up. You need to mature. And what we're seeing here in 2 Peter 1 is that very thing. He's calling us and describing for us a task given by God to us, what is provided to us, what it looks like, and why it's given to us. I would like to ask you, I'm going to read the text for us, 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 through 11, and if you wouldn't mind, in honor of the scriptures, would you rise while I read it, if you would stand while I read the text? <clears throat> Second Peter chapter 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. You may be seated, thank you. So what I see in here is, is basically three sections. There's a section that he is gonna describe what has been provided to us, what has been granted to us. And then he's going to describe as he does what that performance, we've been given something and what that performance of that gift and provision should look like and what our participation in that is. And then he concludes by giving us what the purpose, in other words, the gift what has been granted to you has a purpose. It has an outcome that is desired. And so in verse one we see where he makes the statement that it's Simon Peter, but he makes a statement to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. He's making a connection to those who read it, and he says, you have a faith that is just like ours. I want to propose to you that the ours in there is the apostles. Uh, He's referring to the teachers, those who have been describing faith, those who have been presenting it to the church. The faith that we, our faith, you have a similar faith. It's like ours. The good news to you is that that statement is not necessarily restricted to the time it is written. Because today, if you have the faith that Peter had, you have the same faith. And so his letter applies to you as well. If you possess the same faith that the apostles had, then he's writing to you this encouragement. And he makes the statement in here that by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice that he calls Christ God. It's another passage in Scripture that, that affirms the deity of Christ, but it also refers to the fact that he is the savior as well. Then he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I wanna stop for a minute here because the term knowledge in there, I'd like to expand on it for you just a minute. In Greek, the word is epigenosis. And when it just refers to general knowledge, it uses the term gnosis, which is just knowledge. But when he adds the word epigenosis, it means it's a certain kind of knowledge that is true and accurate. It is aligned with what is true, and it is accurate. And so in this case, he's basically saying the knowledge that you have of Jesus Christ is true and accurate, and it's this knowledge that gives you the faith and the the understanding that you have the same kind of faith that we have. Now, when I began to think about epigenosis and true knowledge, I started thinking of contrast. And one illustration that came to my mind was when I was a sophomore in college, <clears throat> I was a cheerleader. I know some of you are shocked. You look at me, not sure that could have happened. But I was, I was a cheerleader. They didn't call them yell leaders back then. It was back in the 70s, we were cheerleaders. We didn't find offense to that. And one of the things that our team, the, the George Fox College Bruins, We had a decent basketball team. We weren't the best, we weren't number one. And yet there was a cheer we would continue to lead periodically in a game where we'd get the crowd to chant, we're number one, we're number one. And I remember at a point in time when I was a cheerleader, I'm thinking, we're not number one. (laughs) So we're getting, we're number one, and in my head I'm going, no, we're not. We're not number one. You see, epigenosis, the knowledge is that I don't declare something that is not true, that my declaration is true and accurate to the facts. And in that case, what was occurring was we were declaring something that was not true. The other element is that epigenosis would also, in the sense of faith, is that my faith is accurate to the truth that has been presented. That I'm not portraying something on the surface that is not true to the core of what is real. When I thought about that component, I realized that in our culture, we often attempt to portray ourselves to others in a certain way that we are not. And this epigenosis is that the way you portray yourself is true and accurate to who you are. <clears throat> One of the great illustrations that, from history related to this, I'd love to share with you, I've shared it with the staff There's a ship that was built in in the 1600s by King Gustav Adolphus of Sweden. It was called the Vasa. Evidently, the Vasa means the vessel. And so this vessel, the king ordered the ship builders to do would be the biggest ship that existed. They were at war with Poland and superiority on the water of the Baltic Sea was the desired outcome. And so King Gustav Adolphus wanted them to build a ship that would strike fear in the enemy. It was to be the biggest ship that had ever been built. More guns, more decks, larger masts, bigger sails. It was to strike fear. Correlating, it would be like their Death Star. That when it came on the horizon, everybody fleed because they knew they couldn't beat it, and their destruction was for sure. Well, it comes about that the ship was finally built and it was beautiful. The carvings were magnificent. More guns than any ship had ever had. The masts were huge. The sails, massive. And it left Stockholm in the waterways to go to the front naval base on the Baltic Sea. All of Sweden in the area came out to see this magnificent ship. They lined the canals. To see this masterpiece of construction head out to sea, and they were amazed at what they saw. The record says it got three quarters of a mile and encountered this is literally what the historian said encountered a wind slightly stronger than a breeze. <laughs> the mast and sails filled, the ship leaned and never righted itself and it sank three-quarters of a mile the application is this they were more concerned what it looked like above the waterline than what was below the waterline the ballast below the waterline did not give support to what was displayed above and what was displayed above was not accurate to what was below in the Christian life my charge in the epigenosis is that what we live and portray is who we are. And we live for the audience of one. We live for him. And we live accurate to the truth. So in his statement here, the epigenosis, it's the truth. It is the accurate truth of who God is and what Jesus has done. And then he says in verse three, seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us. Now, we may read past that a little quickly. I'd like you to come back and listen and think for a minute. He has granted us everything. What God gives you is not on an installment plan. He doesn't give you a portion and then say, let's see what you do with that and then I'll give you more. The spiritual life, when we become believers, is we are granted everything we need for life and godliness. And by the way, the Greek word life here embraces the idea of vibrancy. If I were to put it in simple terms, is you have everything you need to live a vibrant godly life everything you lack nothing and that's what he's trying to make the statement to them you have everything you need you don't lack anything now you may ask the question why would Peter feel it necessary to make that statement and historically during this time there was a group called the Gnostics that came up and the Gnostics were basically saying the Apostles have gotten you started but you need more to experience true spirituality It would be similar to us saying, the apostles were offering you spiritual growth, version 1.0. We as the Gnostics are offering you spiritual truth, version 2.0, which is a better, more expanded version. And what Peter had to address to them was, no, you have the same faith as the apostles, and you have everything you need. God has not withheld anything from you to live a spiritual life. To grow spiritually, he has given you everything that you need. And so in the text he says, by his divine power, he's granted you everything through the true knowledge of him who called by his own glory and who called you by his own glory and excellence. And again, it's the epigenosis, the true knowledge. And what he's trying to make sure the believers knew is everything that you receive from us about faith and trust in Christ, there is nothing to add to it. In fact, when you become a believer, you have everything that you need. I think he expands on this in verse four because he says, for by these, meaning his promises and his nature and his gifts, he is granted to us. By them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world. In John, Peter would have remembered in the upper room, when Christ has what's called an upper room discourse with them. He's teaching them and what to expect. And one of the key principles he presents to the apostles at that point is he says, he who has been with you will be in you. Uh, The Holy Spirit prior to Acts came and went. It did not reside. We have Samson who it says the spirit came on him mightily for a certain time and then he left. And yet Christ is telling the apostles in the upper room that there's a point coming that this Holy Spirit who's been with you is going to be in you. And then we see the fulfillment of that promise in Acts chapter two. When the spirit takes up residence in the believer. So when Peter is saying, he, God has given you everything that you need To live a vibrant godly life, and now you become partakers of his divine nature. Paul states it in in Corinthians about you become a new creature. And that new creature is now a temple where the Holy Spirit indwells. And so what we have here is basically that the apostle that Christ has called us to living a godly life. And his provision has been he's given us everything that we need, everything that we need. When I looked at that, I thought of times at Christmas when I, in my hubris, felt I did not need the instructions to put together the children's gift. I had everything that I needed, I just chose, in my hubris, to not use it. In the Christian spiritual walk, you have everything that you need. It is available to you. In verses five and following, what we have is what that life would look like. Before I go there, I'm I'm remembering something that I would like to share with you. Um, This idea of having everything that you need uh, reminded me of a book that I read when I was in college. It was called The Saving Life of Christ by Major Ian Thomas. And in that book, Major Ian Thomas is really expanding on the idea of what it means for Christ to be in us. Uh, It sits on my bookshelf. I thought I would bring it to you because it's basically falling apart, and I have to keep putting it back together. But back in 19, about 1973, I was reading this book extensively. And one of the quotes that he makes in there that impacted my life was he said, for me to be in Christ makes heaven my home. But for Christ to be in me makes this world his workshop. And just like Peter, Major Ian Thomas recognized that there's a journey that we are undertaking from the point of conversion where we come to know faith, the true knowledge of who Christ is and what he's done, But then there's a point as Peter will show in in verse 11 that there's a gate entering into the eternal kingdom and there's a period there. And I think what Peter, I don't think, Peter is actually talking about that period. He talks about their assurance of being chosen and given everything they need and then he ends it with the entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And so this interim part is what is that life supposed to look like? What are we supposed to be charged with? So what we have now is the fact that the provision has been made and predominantly that's giving us the Holy Spirit that indwells us. But now we look at these uh, virtues that he talks about and where he says basically that we are to put every effort, every effort, look at verse 5. Now for this reason also applying all diligence in your faith and then he begins to list these other qualities. It is clear that Peter is communicating to the readers that there is a responsibility they have to participate in the godly lifestyle. God provides you what you need and then you are to participate in applying everything you have toward those qualities. And so understand that he's calling them to apply all diligence in these areas. Let's just look briefly at that. I did, I did find a quote that I thought was pretty good because when he says, in our text, it says, add to, add to this, this, and so forth. That, that Greek word basically is the idea of bring them together. It's not a list of individual qualities while we can identify those qualities. The idea Peter has is with your faith, bring these aligned with it. Bring these alongside. These should accompany your faith. And you and I should put every effort that we have in bringing them to our faith. Faith is the foundation, that's the basis. And then he lists these seven qualities. Let's look at them briefly, I'm not gonna go into a a long uh, explanation, but just briefly. So if faith is the foundation, then I'm to bring alongside moral excellence. The idea here between moral excellence is that I'm I'm to bring alongside virtuous thoughts, emotions, and action those things that are virtuous. I'm not only to possess the faith and understand it, but I'm to bring alongside to that moral excellence. I'm to bring alongside knowledge. Now, this is interesting because this word is not epigenosis, it's gnosis. And if you recall earlier, I said gnosis is that general knowledge and understanding, but epi is that that's very specific and true to a certain point. And I think what Peter is making a point is there is still advantage in learning you're a lifelong learner. And so spiritual maturity means that I'm continuing to read and expand my knowledge of what truth is in understanding who God is and the world that I live in and how to live a vibrant, godly life in that world. So I'm to continue to be learning. Self-control predominantly looks at the idea of mastering our desires and our passions. I think we all know that we have these desires and passions that we recognize quickly. They don't fit in with what we understand to be godly. And this is, along with your faith, you're to bring every effort to master your passions and your desires so that they're aligned with your faith. And then you have perseverance. It just simply means sticking to it. Don't give up. Just keep after it. And then godliness, in the reference of these qualities, I think godliness is more pointing at a sense of reverence. That I have faith and I'm striving to bring these together and I'm I'm to do it in a constant attitude of reverence to who God is. In reverence to him. To that we add brotherly kindness, which is general actions of kindness toward others. And then he ends with agape. Agape. And I think agape is ending it because agape has that element of unconditional. The idea that I'm going to love you in spite of what you do. I'm going to have a loyal commitment of love and my actions are going to display that. Now I find it interesting that after he lists these and tells us that we are to give every effort to bring those alongside, he gives us a qualifier. Notice that in verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Two thoughts came to mind when I saw that because basically he's not saying that you're going to be graded on a percentage of how well you did according to the mastery. It's not a percentage grade like you experience in school. If I only get goodness 50%, I fail. The idea here is that you are in the game and you are striving toward the goal. And that's what spiritual maturity is defined at by Peter. That these elements and qualities, I'm giving every effort and I'm getting better at my brotherly kindness. I'm improving, that these are increasing. I must admit when I saw that, two things came to mind. One is in being in education for a long time, there were several opportunities that I had a chance to sit down with a teenager who had made a bad choice. They'd they'd simply made a bad choice, and here was my opportunity to help guide them to accept responsibility for their actions, to understand the importance of good, true character, and to help them move along in their growth. But almost every time I would sit down and begin to talk with them, the first words out of their mouth was either, well, what about Joe? Or well aren't you, aren't you going to do something about so and so this isn't as bad as so and so it it became this comparative conversation and and second peter here he takes the comparativeness out of it he removes it it's not that we are compared to each other it's simply as you look at your spiritual life and your spiritual growth are these qualities increasing it's a self-evaluation I also will tell you that a certain joke came to mind when I saw that and the idea of comparing when you wanna be better than somebody else. It's that, I'm sure you've heard it, it's that one where two guys are in a cabin and a bear starts to break into the cabin and they both realize they have no escape. The bear's going to get them. And one guy sits down in a chair and he takes off his hiking boots and puts on his tennis shoes. And the guy looks at him and says, what are you doing? You can't outrun the bear. And he says, I don't have to outrun the bear, I just have to outrun you. (laughs) The idea we just need to be better than somebody else, and Peter removes that when we look at this comparison of our spiritual growth. And so for us, it's the element of, are these increasing? The other thing I want to tell you is, there is no age restriction that Peter provides. It doesn't say as we live this side of the heavenly realms that as to, when I get to a certain age, I no longer have to strive anymore. There's no retirement plan in spiritual growth. But I do think we at times can go, I'm content with where I am. I'm doing pretty good. And we can slow down in that, that intentional spiritual growth element where I begin to say, am I really... Am I improving? Am I progress? Am I progressing? And so you had that. So we are to be in the lifelong process of applying these, diligently applying them, um, And basically it's not a comparison. It's for spiritual growth, is are these? Am I giving my effort to allow these to grow? And then he states the following. For if these qualities are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful. And then in 9 he says, For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification. The imagery here is that there is to be a consistent uh, expression of what Christ has done for us. And those that are expressing that will be fruitful and will be... As it states in here, it says, you will be useful. Now, as I stated earlier, Peter starts with faith and ends with the gates of heaven. And this, of what he's calling us, the diligence that we are to be applying ourselves to is that course, that track, that race, if you will. And we are being called to apply every effort during that time frame to allow these to grow in us. And it says, if we are in that, we will not stumble and we will be fruitful. And that is what we're called to. And then remember, he's given us everything to live that life. He's not left us wanting. And then he describes the individual that isn't living that life as short-sighted or blind. And he points to the fact that the very true knowledge of what Christ has done, they've forgotten. And what I would offer to you is that when we recognize the true knowledge of what Christ has done, the actual normal response to that is applying our diligence to live that out. And the idea of short-sightedness is somebody, instead of their eyes looking forward in the direction they should be going and striving for, they're actually looking down. Their sight is no longer directed toward him, it's directed downward. And then he concludes in verse uh, 10 and 11, he says, therefore, brethren, Be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Two things I would draw your attention to in that. One is that the stumbling is not loss of faith. The stumbling is in the production of the godly lifestyle. The path is set, and if I'm looking up, I'm not short-sighted, I'm looking down, I'm striving, then I won't stumble on that course. But then also notice, he recognizes that those who are faithful in giving their best efforts to bring these together to their faith, there is a reception waiting at the entrance of the kingdom of God. I don't know what that reception is. I can speculate. But the one thing that Peter makes clear to us is that reception, whatever that reception is, will be abundantly supplied. There is a reward awaiting those who will give their best efforts to bring these qualities alongside their faith. Now, as an educator, one of the things that we know, if you're a teacher, is that there's a couple things that can really help solidify a lesson. One of those is a visual aid, where you not only hear the truth, but then you get something that you can see that solidifies that. So I have one example and then I have, I'm gonna be your visual aid. Are you, you, you're kind of wondering, right? What is it gonna be? I'm gonna leave you in suspense, that's kind of fun. Leave Anyway, one of these is Ian Thomas creates this imagery of a car in which he wanted for a long time. It had a large engine in it. You can, you can create whatever car in your mind you would like. This engine that was powerful. And he says, once he received the car as a gift, what would we think of an individual receiving that gift, going out, unlocking the steer, steering wheel, putting it in neutral, opening the door, and putting their shoulder to the wheel and pushing the car down the street? We would go, why would you do that? And he says, the individual who does that, who ends up getting something of that power and then chooses to push it in their own strength, the very gift they have with power becomes a burden that I get tired of trying to push. And he equates that, he equates that to us receiving the Holy Spirit in us. We have the power for everything that we need. And yet if we attempt to live the godly life in our own power we're doing that very same thing. We are attempting to live a godly life through my own power and that was not God's intention. And that's why the spiritual life for some becomes a burden. Now, the other illustration I have for you is this. I dressed up for you today, right? I told you that I felt like I could be in a catalog. And people told me, you cleaned up nice. But if I were to take my coat off, (laughs) what I portrayed to you was a well-dressed individual but what was under the surface was a tattered and torn shirt that you couldn't see. My charge to you this morning would simply be, take time to do your own spiritual inventory. Ask God to give you insight into areas in which you're trying to portray something you're not, and ask him to give you understanding to where you can actually become those very things that you're trying to do. The other is, have God to, Provide for you an understanding of areas in which you are trying to live the spiritual life in your own flesh, in your own power, in your own strength. And ask Him to give you insight and understanding as to how you can rely on the Holy Spirit. The passage is clear we have everything we need. Paul states in Corinthians, there is no temptation overtaken you, but such as is common to man, that he is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able, but will with the temptation provide you a way of escape. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. You have everything you need to not only face the challenges, but also to do good. And hear Peter's words. Give it your best efforts to bring those spiritual qualities alongside your faith. Partner in the process by giving it your best energies and experience the blessings that God provides in that. Let me close this in prayer. Gracious Father, your word is true. Our faith is sure because it's accurate and grounded in who Christ is and what he has accomplished on our behalf. Father, let us not be individuals who just put our heads down, become short-sighted and forget the great thing that you have provided us in the promise of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And may we take to heart, even though they're Major Ian Thomas' words, may we take to heart and begin to apply to realize that you being, us being in you makes heaven our home. But you being in us makes this world his workshop. May we be faithful servants to you. In Jesus' name, amen.